From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast. 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPB. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but courtesy of Turkey Day Weekend, you have me, Angie Quiro, sitting in. And you know, I've never felt the need to do this before, but I'm going to start doing it today with a disclaimer. No one has Brad's skill at covering voting machines, their deficits, recounts, audits, etc. That is clearly the big story this week. And I'll just tell you flat out, I can't so much as kiss Brad's shoes on that. He lives and breathes and bleeds this stuff, whereas I follow the news, gather some facts, form some opinions. I am nowhere near his caliber. The first thing I can recommend you do, if you haven't heard every one of his shows this week, despite the holiday, take some time to listen in. This call for recount and audit may be the most important thing that has happened post-election. And it's going to have repercussions that go well beyond this election, well beyond whether Trump remains president-elect, well beyond what we discover about the machines that could be fixed by next year. This has implications for elections going from now through probably the death of most of us. I th- have I made enough of a case that this is important? So, yes, keep listening because I'm going to bring you the latest on what's happening with the recount, the call for recount, the potential for an audit. But to get a solid grounding on what's really happening with a great deal of historical perspective and detail, if you've missed any of Brad's shows this week, I recommend you go back and give them a listen. Okay? More coming up on that in just a moment. We're going to hear, too, from Leland Faust this hour. Leland Faust is a full-on capitalist. Now, hear me out. He has taken a long look at what has become of investing and finance in the U.S., and he wants it all changed. Now, he may not want the regulations, either in style or in quantity, that you or I might want to see, but he is putting out a call for basic decency in bank behaviors, and it's not pretty, please. He has ideas on how to enforce that. So Leland Faust is worth a listen. He's going to come up later on in this hour. So let's get to the latest with the push for a recount or an audit on the vote. First of all, make sure you know the difference. Getting a recount on the vote and getting a vote audited, these are two very different things. And this was defined really well by the National Academy of Sciences in 2005. And of course, nothing has changed in this particular thing since then. Let me give you their their full definition here. A contested election usually includes a more complete audit, which seeks to validate and verify as many aspects of the election cycle as possible without violating state privacy laws. In particular, an audit cannot use data that might associate a specific voter with a specific ballot. 
recounts can involve machine retabulation of the ballots for one race or all races, verifying the totals for each candidate or choice, and or hand counts of additional individual precinct totals in sufficient number to narrow the statistical margin of error. Note also that recounts, in other words, retabulations per se, do not change the outcome, do not usually change the outcome of elections. When outcomes change, it's usually for other reasons. And they give the example. In the 2000 presidential election in Florida, we all remember that one, the count changed because of the way voter intent was interpreted on cards. Nightmares of hanging chads. Not because of a difference in the machine count. Going back to their definition, the primary challenges for election officials in audits arise when vote tabulation systems or human vote counters are unable to infer voter intent from marks that are recorded on the ballot, resulting in uncertain counts. In addition, an election audit may also include challenging voter registration rules. Those include the number of voters disqualified at the polls, those disqualified during registration, and those denied absentee ballot requests. Reviewing the disposition of provisional ballots and determining whether voters received the correct ballots. See how much more thorough that is. I am very happy to hear Jill Stein raising money, and she successfully raised enough money at this point to do at least two of the three states that she wanted to see recounted. But the push to audit the vote goes on, and not just in this election. We have seen more than ever in this particular election how determined Republicans are to keep voters away from the polls, how indifferent they can be to any evidence that people have been turned away illegitimately. We have seen how they manipulate the systems, even in legitimate ways, in in legal ways, to make sure that most of the votes end up going to them through discouraging voters, through putting out misinformation about when the vote is, through continuing to support laws that don't allow felons to vote. There are a lot of ways, both legal and illegal, that people of ill intent are currently, notably, demonstrably, limiting the vote of the American people. A recount does not account for that. An audit does. So bear that in mind throughout this ongoing conversation because it's not going to end very soon. But here we are with MSNBC's latest on Jill Stein's effort documented in detail in uh, Brad's Wednesday show this week. From MSNBC, Green Party presidential nominee Jill Stein's effort to force a recount of results in three Rust Belt states garnered more green this week. It surpassed her initial fundraising goal and crossed the $4 million mark. Stein is mounting the legal challenge to reexamine the vote totals in Michigan, where MSNBC News has never called a winner, and in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, states that performed wildly differently than polling suggested they would on Election Day. And polling, different conversation altogether. As I record this, This is the day that a recount must be requested in Wisconsin. And at last word, Stein and company are doing that. They are filing the recount request. They will submit the $1.1 million required to pay for it. And the deadline coming up for Michigan and Pennsylvania next week. 
You know, there's a lot to be said about a system where sane people, regardless of their political inclinations, can agree that we're not seeing an ideal reflection of what the voters wanted. You know, the case could be made, it doesn't matter who you wanted for president. It doesn't matter what goes down with a recount this time. If, even if you believe that, the case could be made that you could look at what's been happening this week, this effort to gin up money from average citizens to ascertain in the face of some documentable fact that the right person wasn't declared the winner and say, what's wrong with this picture? Why is it that American citizens are having to dig into their own pockets and hope that other American citizens are moved to do so as well, to write the check to get a proper count on the vote? These are intricate considerations. You can say, all right, obviously there can't be a blanket law that says anyone and his dog can raise his hand and say, I think that vote is wrong. And then the county or the state or the country have to fund a recount or fund an audit. Of course not. I've never heard anyone say that. But there's a vast amount of ground between some random wacko saying, now you have to count again, and a number of agencies credible agencies, people with credentials saying something is vastly wrong with the way this count came out. And the jurisdictions don't take it upon themselves to figure out what just happened with that vote. I think that what's happening here with Stein's effort to raise this money, even in this incredibly divided country we have right now, I like to believe it's resonating across party lines in some cases. And with the more rabid Trump voters, <laughs> yes, there's a subset of Trump voters that's not rabid, really, I believe that. But when we're talking about the rabid ones who pontificate about this and, and yipe and say, oh, this is just the sore losers. This is sour grapes. You said that, you know, it was wrong if Trump wouldn't respect the results. Why don't you respect the results? Blah, blah, blah. I don't understand unless we're talking about cases of deliberate ignorance, a refusal to understand, it is in the interests of the Trump voters as well to know that a clean, accurate count contributed to the votes to be cast by the Electoral College to give us a legitimately elected president. The fact is, for anyone, regardless of who they voted for, regardless of whether they stayed home and didn't vote, no one has anything to lose, anything legit to lose, with an audit and recount. Because for those of us who really, really think Trump will devastate the country and the world, wouldn't we at least want to know that, fine, he ascended to his throne legitimately, his gold-plated throne legitimately? Maybe, maybe that would make it a little easier to swallow down some of what we'll have to do in at least the next four years. Because what's really making it even more sour is the fact that a lot of us don't believe he got those votes legitimately. And for those who support Trump, instead of having to be in this defensive crouch, wouldn't it be to their benefit to be able to stand up and say, it's all been counted, it's all been audited, the man that we wanted to be president is president by a legitimate vote, by the book, 
the way the framers intended it. I have yet to hear any one of them address the fact they don't really have anything to lose here if a legitimate presidency is, in fact, their goal. Washington Post covered the Jill Stein movement. They went into the, the headline from the Washington Post's Dave Weigel. Why are people giving Jill Stein millions of dollars for an election recount? They quote Stein saying, this has been a hack-riddled election. We have voting machines extremely hack-friendly in an election that's been very contentious. And Weigel points out that donors blew right past the first goal, that initial $2.5 million fundraising goal. And then the goal went up to $4.5 million. The Washington Post cited new language on the donation page, admitting that costs could rise higher. The campaign wrote the costs associated with recounts are a function of state laws. Attorneys' fees are likely to be another 2 to $3 million, another fee that a legitimate government would not allow the taxpayers to have to dig into their pockets and opt to pick up. Continuing with the Stein quote, then there are the costs of the statewide recount observers in all three states. The total cost is likely to be six or seven million dollars. Now, there's plenty of contention on the Internet whether, in fact, that language really changed on the Stein fundraiser website. I've seen screenshots to both effects. I feel about Jill Stein much the way I've always felt about Hillary Clinton. Admiration, mostly respect, and a little bit of looking askance at some of their history. But I think the comparison here between what we're seeing said about Jill Stein and whether this is legitimate and whether she's just cruising for more bucks is roughly akin to what we saw thrown at Hillary Clinton. Illegitimate anger, slamming of a woman who is doing something in an honest effort to help the country. It happened to Clinton, and now it seems to be happening to Stein. One thing that's also been happening with Jill Stein, by the way, just parenthetically here, and we're going to get back to the, to the vote auditing and vote recounting. One of the things that's happening to Jill Stein as well is the same thing that we saw happening with Ralph Nader with the 2000 election, this whole concept of a spoiler. If we've learned anything in this election, who knows? We've learned so many ugly things this election. But the fact is, you never know what polls are accurate, how accurate they are, or whether they were a complete mess from start to finish. Yes, there are some polls that say, oh, look, here is the gap between Clinton and Trump in XYZ race, in XYZ state. And here is the number of people who voted for Johnson or Stein. Now, if those two people hadn't been running, that many more people could have voted for Hillary Clinton. That narrative never has stopped around Ralph Nader. And it looks about to be stuck in concrete, too, for the rest of Stein's life. Polls, as we know, should not be trusted 100%. But as many polls that would tell you that it would have been a Clinton victory, a clear Clinton victory, if Stein had stepped down, are just as frequent as the polls that tell you if the Green Party members and the people supporting Stein had not had her to vote for, they would have stayed home. The comparison that I see is, in sheer numbers, in sheer figures, oh, well, here we have 2,000 that Hillary lost by. Here we have 2,000 people who voted for Stein. Ergo, if Stein had stood down, Clinton would have won. That doesn't make any sense. And we're always calling on each other to be critical thinkers. We're calling upon each other to have honest thinking processes and look at causality and be able to prove causality. And all we're doing here is allowing Jill Stein to be slapped around for running 
for office, which is her right, and having a lot of supporters, which is to her credit, and those supporters would not necessarily have voted for President Clinton. I want to do my tiny part to put that to rest, although having lived through the Nader campaign and what's happened in its wake and how the truth never really does seem to matter on that one, regardless of how many figures you can find to back it up, I don't have a whole lot of hope that Stein's ever going to be forgiven for this. Not much. Okay, as promised, we're going to go back to the recount issue. Going back to the Washington Post, the Green Party, it does note, has done this before. In 2004, it says, when many Democrats asked whether Ohio had been lost to voter suppression, the Green Party teamed up with the Libertarians to pay for a recount. David Cobb was the presidential candidate for the Green Party at the time. He hadn't even appeared on Ohio's ballot, but he helped to raise $150,000 to start the recount process. And the quote here in the Washington Post, due to widespread reports of irregularities in the Ohio voting process, we are compelled to demand a recount of the Ohio presidential vote. Voting is the heart of the democratic process in which we as a nation put our faith. Now, the result, as the Post goes on to note, as Dave Weigel goes on to note, was there was essentially no difference in the margin once the recount was done. But do you see that same principle behind it? The people busy for, you know, slamming Jill Stein and saying, oh, where were you when we were telling you that, you know, you were a danger to Hillary Clinton are now saying, oh, well, too little, too late. Now she's trying to raise money. What is she up to? Here you have the track record. The Green Party did it before with not a great deal to win and sheerly for the integrity of the process. I give her full credit that her intent here is honest. Your call on the rest of that. Let's move on to something else about this, the whole idea of getting the recount. And the case for auditing all the elections. And for that, we go to Wired. Andy Greenberg in Wired. Hacked or not, audit this election and all future ones. We have the technology. There's certainly a legitimate goal in making sure that elections are clean and the right person takes office. And why is this even a conversation? (laughs) Why is it even a conversation? But as we already know, there's about half the country that really doesn't want the other half the country to be able to vote. So they have to make this case in Wired by Andy Greenberg. And he makes his point that Americans are all too ready to believe their actual votes have been hacked. The fears have been stoked by a team of security experts who argue that voting machine vulnerabilities mean that Clinton should demand recounts in key states. We haven't heard, as of this recording, we haven't heard a peep from the Clinton campaign. Nothing Nothing. Now, some of what Greenberg went into in this article was actually covered on Brad's show, not this article per se, but the content. Alex Halderman with his blog post that Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania should do the recounts because of the risks that the election was hacked. That's all back in the Wednesday show. So give that a listen. listen. But Greenberg goes on to expound on this. And he chimes in with other security experts who say that the underlying argument that Halderman makes that auditing elections would help to settle dangerous, persistent uncertainty in a system potentially plagued by hackers is valid. Auditing is not as taxing as a full recount. And so, Greenberg says, much in keeping with what I've been saying, they should not be deployed strictly as an emergency provision in contested elections, but a default part of the process. Great quote from MIT in here. Brush your teeth. Eat your spinach audit your elections. (laughs) 
It should be that simple. It should. I mean, aren't we talking about the leader of the free world? And all the people who serve immediately below him or her? Why, why is this a question? And the article goes in much more detail than I have time for here about paper ballots versus machine ballots versus, you know, laser ballots, whatever. Check that article out because I think this is a very strong case that this needs to be not just this election that we are talking about. By the way, if you're just tuning in, Brad and Desi have the day off. I'm Angie Carter sitting in for them here on the Bradcast. Let's go to what may be one of the most important stories that came out this week. And because it came out on Thanksgiving, the number of people who need to see this probably will not. So help to spread this one around. And again, we go to the Washington Post, this time Craig Timberg on the story. Big deal. The tracking of Russian propaganda efforts to spread fake news during the election. And it's all the stuff that you heard about Clinton about, oh, she's about to die of some disease that she won't share with us. That crooked Hillary, the hashtag, the way it spread around, the sheer amount of numbers. From the story, the flood of fake news this election season got support from a sophisticated Russian propaganda campaign that created and spread misleading articles with the goal of punishing Hillary Clinton, helping Republican Donald Trump, and undermining faith in American democracy. Of those three, one of those lives forever. When Hillary Clinton is dead and gone, when you and I are dead and gone, when Donald Trump is dead and gone, American democracy goes on only if people believe in it. If you want to be flippant about it, it's kind of like that. Did you ever see that Monty Python skit with the apartment building that only stayed up as long as people believed in it? And as soon as they started to doubt, the apartment building fell down. American democracy is kind of like that. Without faith, it doesn't survive. So this flood of fake news that's being tracked coming in from Russia has a much dirtier goal than dealing with one election. It can undermine the way we conduct our country by undermining the fact that we care, by undermining the fact that we believe, that undermines those of us who decide that it's worth going to the polls. If we decide it's not, we stop going. Back to the story, Russia's increasingly sophisticated propaganda machinery, including thousands of botnets, teams of paid human trolls, networks of websites and social media accounts echoed and amplified right-wing sites across the internet, portraying Clinton as a criminal, hiding potential fatal health problems, and preparing to hand control of the nation to a shadowy cabal of global financiers. They also sought to heighten the appearance of international tensions and promote fear of looming hostilities with nuclear-armed Russia. Two teams of independent researchers found the Russians exploited American-made technology platforms to attack U.S. democracy. As an insurgent candidate harnessed a wide range of grievances to claim the White House, the sophistication of the Russian tactics may complicate efforts by Facebook and Google to crack down on fake news, as they have vowed to do after widespread complaints about the problem. Insert entire rant here about how, Google aside, Facebook has no particular motivation to sort out the fake news problem. Facebook is utterly reliant on data generated from and by its users. As an amoral corporation, corporations are amoral by definition, as an amoral corporation, if they offend their users by pulling news that they have been trained to believe is legitimate, these people get angry and go away from Facebook. Facebook damages its income. 
Facebook at that point is an irresponsible corporation. See how that works? Facebook cannot afford to anger its users. Whether their users are getting accurate information is not within Facebook's milieu. Their only job is to deliver data to the streams that they have dedicated the data to. And if, that if the data comes from a person who understands how the world works, that data is just as valuable, no more valuable, nor more valued, than from someone who has no clue how the world works, who can't recognize fake news. They are all the same. You cannot show me, despite declarations to the contrary, why Facebook would care to change their approach to news. Or shall I say, quote unquote, news. <sighs> shall we take a break here? I think we shall. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Leland Faust. I was lucky enough to sit down with him and have uh, an hour-long conversation and it's the kind of conversation I don't have that often. I, you know, I don't have on my own show, Indeed. I don't often have people who say, I'm a capitalist. I relate not to socialism. I relate not to Occupy. But I believe that the fiscal sector is in a mess, and I want to see it changed. Coming around the corner here, it's the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Well, you know you make me want to shout, kick my heels up and shout, Stuff makes you want to shout, even though it's not in particular happiness. A lot of shouting going on with no particular glee. It is the Bradcast. I'm Angie Coiro. You know, in all our post-election, hopefully pre-audit, pre-recount frenzy, it's, it's really easy to lose sight of the more mundane, ongoing, pathetic businesses as usual that kind of keep the massive gap between America's have and have-nots in not only intact, but growing. So hard as it is, let's not lose sight of those while all of our focus is on Trump Clinton, because boring though they may be, in contrast with a talking Cheeto and his buddies overseas, they remain important. So let's listen up to Leland, Leland Faust. Leland Faust is anything but an anti-capitalist reformer. He has made a very, very good living since the 70s in the investment industry, but he watched his industry change over the decades into an ugly, greedy monster that puts profits for the companies over the gains and the security of its clients, big or small. He's got a book out now called A Capitalist Lament. And it kind of reaches out to bridge the gap between Occupy and socialists like me and, and others on the far left who do want to see change and pro-capitalists like himself who want to reintroduce sanity and basic decency 
into the finance world. And one of the best things for me that came out of this conversation was learning the specifics. Both, and, and I'm talking about both faction, fractions, you know, oh, well, this got charged to you at 20% and you didn't know it. And the emotional ringer that people within this industry go through. I don't think I would have been able to garner this information from someone who isn't at home within the realm of capitalism and just wants to make it a better world. So I, I hope you get the same out of listening to him that I do. I sat down and talked to Leland Faust before a live audience in Menlo Park, California. 1978, when you formed your company, what was the world of Wall Street that you were entering at the time? Was it really different from today? It was quite different because Wall Street at the time was still based primarily on the uh, old idea that you made investments uh, for the long term rather than engaging in gambling. One of the huge trends over the last 35 years I've observed and anyone would have to agree has been the increase from an emphasis on fundamentals and investing, you know, really owning owning things. Uh, you, you own stock, you own a piece of a company that presumably makes goods, provides services, uh, and you know, can grow indefinitely. Or even if you invest in a bond, you put your money in, you get your interest, you get your money back. But everybody to that transaction can be happy with what they got. The company got its money, it paid its interest, you got your interest, you got your money back at the end, everybody's happy, or your stock grows. But what's happened over the years is a huge increase in gambling rather than investing. So when I started, uh, there were concepts that are seem outdated. I don't think they really are, but some are. For instance, it was unlawful for a stockbroker to constantly be turning over his client's portfolio because that was supposed to be bad and it was done so that the broker could generate lots of high commissions. Mm -hmm. Well, the, now the commissions are either very, very low or non-existent in some cases. People turn over their portfolios constantly. So we didn't have that. Anything over maybe 25% a year was viewed as fairly extreme. Now the average mutual fund does more, than, much more than that. And individuals even have done more. So you, you certainly had that kind of difference. When I first started, the public options markets had just started. Uh, when I first actually finished school, there were no publicly traded options. So this was a whole new new thing. There were no derivatives. Uh, short sales existed, but they were very modest in, com in comparison. The amount of uh, borrowing and leverage was much less. So all of these things have, have blossomed in a bad sense, as far as I'm concerned, over time. Uh, but it was entirely different that way. The emphasis was on investing for the long term. There were no hot IPOs. Uh, there might have been an IPO, but the whole idea of an IPO was to, the, the brokers and the companies to figure out what the right price would be so it would stay stable, mm -hmm. not so that it would jump massively the first day and create feeding frenzies and lots and lots of activity and trades. And some of the players that we have today, we, we had once upon a time, as you come into the 20th century, of all things, I was watching Upstairs, Downstairs, the old series, Upstairs, Downstairs. And at one point, one of the characters ends up investing madly and he loses everything. But when he's trying to get his family to invest, he said, these fellows in New York, Goldman Sachs, they're on top of everything. You know, they're the leaders here. And I thought, wow, Goldman Sachs, really? So, I mean, some of the players outlast 
some of the worst possible decisions. Well, that's true. If you have a lot of money, uh, people pay attention to you and you have a lot of power, both. I mean, to some degree, it's kind of like the uh, song from Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, the, the poor, uh, I think even milk man or something, uh, is saying, well, if he was a rich man, well, one of the lines in the songs is he wanted to be rich because right or wrong, they, they think he really knew. And this is what happens on Wall Street too, way too often. These successful firms put out these pronouncements and they don't know anything more than their other, than the other investors do, than even you and I do. But they have this imprimatur of they know. Well, they don't know. It's been proven over and over and over again, but nobody seems to pay any attention. A lot of it I put on the at the, at the feet of the press. They don't hold them accountable. They're part of the story. If, if, if you're working for the press, you're working for whoever it is, Barron's, the, the Wall Street Journal, um, and you go to somebody, he puts out a wrong prediction. You go back the next year, you ask him the same question, he puts out a wrong prediction. You go back the next year, wrong prediction. Why do you go back for the fourth year or the fifth or the sixth? But this is what happens as long as you're with one of these bigger firms. And it's amazing to, amazing to watch. But uh, Goldman Sachs' chief of strategy in 2000, what's going to happen to the market in their Barron survey? Market's going to go up. What happened? It went down. What's going to happen in 01? It's going to go up. What happened? It went down. Ditto 02. Okay? Those three years combined were the worst uh, stock market in 28 years. Didn't matter. She was still, for years and years to come, treated as just brilliant and uh, everybody you know, paid attention to her. And a lot of people did anyway. So there, and this is not just Goldman Sachs is what I just picked here. Right. It, but it, you know, it's, it's, any, it's, any, you know, it's any of the firms. Uh, in, there has not been a Barron's roundtable, which they gather all these experts every year, 10 of them, and ask them what's going to happen. There has not been one in the last 15 years when the consensus was not that the market was going up, even though it went down significantly in four of those years, including 08, including what I just described. Talking to Leland Faust, his book is A Capitalist Lament, How Wall Street is Fleecing You and Ruining America. Uh, you go into the media later on in the book, but let's go there since we're already talking about it. And you're talking about these people that are the superstars. You know, they're, they're portrayed this way and Barron's puts them up and Forbes puts them up. The question is, if it turns into a, a Charlie Brown football scenario, if they keep being wrong and they're being wrong in public... Why does somebody at some point say, let's not bring this guy back next year? He's wrong all the time. Well, I, that's an interesting question as to why they keep bringing them back. I mean, some of it is you know, familiarity and friends. Some of it is what we discussed just a few minutes ago. If they work for these big firms, they're Dean, they've got to know, even though they don't. Um, but it's clearly that kind of a situation. And I mean, the media, unfortunately, is involved in, in selling whatever it is, their, their websites, their, 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 their magazines, their newspapers, their cable television you know, advertising. And so they keep bringing them back and they don't, most of the audience has no idea that they've been wrong. So they can keep bringing them that for that reason. There's no place you can kind of look for the, for the scorecard. But it's just, it's just over and over. They create these superstars who are either just 
know nothing and have gotten away with it or were lucky and people refuse to believe that there can be elements of luck. Sure, there, and it, sometimes it's combinations, not everybody. I'm not, by the way, obviously there are exceptions to the rules. There are some people who are better than others, but I would posit to you nobody can tell who's better than others in picking stocks until after it's all happened. You mm-hmm. can't tell you know, while it's happening. And you got to look at the really long term because someone can get it right for a long time. I mean, one of the examples that I cite in the book of this uber superstar is the case of Bill Miller and the Leg Mason Value Fund. Now, Bill Miller uh, was given a, a relatively small fund to run in 1991 for Leg Mason. First year he ran it, he outperformed the S&P 500. Well, great. That, you know, that's not easy to do. One year, you can certainly do it. Next year, he outperformed it again. Okay, this, this streak kept running until 15 years in a row he outperformed the S&P. Never been done before. I think he's never been close before for, a, for an equity fund to do that. Well, you can imagine his fund went from being very small to literally being $20 billion. And he himself, according to Forbes, became a billionaire for running it. But what happened? Well, in 2006, he lost... His streak ended, and the S&P beat him. Okay, now, then over the next five years, including that sixth, he lost five of the six years. And he lost by so much that if you did the arc for having put a dollar with him the first year and held it through the entire 16 years, you didn't beat the S&P, gave it all back. Wouldn't that be an argument for staying on top of your portfolio and changing it before the winds change? I mean, if you stayed with this guy for 16 years... You're not looking particularly better than anything else, but if when your portfolio was looking good because of him, if you cashed in right then, you'd be in better shape. Yeah, but you never know when to cash in. Ah. Uh. And you never and and you can look at uh, an, I mean another example that I give in the book. If you you cannot identify who to go to, as I said before, until after the fact. And the example I use, one of the examples in the book, is the Fidelity Magellan Fund, which the Fidelity Magellan Fund, in, this was, goes back a while, but in, in 1978, w- who became a, a legend named Peter Lynch, took it over. And he ran it for 13 years, and he didn't outperform the S&P every year for 13 years. But over those 13 years, he radically outperformed the S&P and took it to the, becoming the biggest mutual fund in the world. Then he resigned because he wanted to. Just, you know, he wanted to retire young at the top. Well, now, Fidelity Magellan had to replace him. Now, let's think about this. We have an opportunity to run the biggest mutual fund in the world, the compensation and the prestige that goes with it. Fidelity Magellan, who picked Peter Lynch, is going to pick the successor. Perhaps Peter Lynch is going to have some input. I don't know, but I would think logically would have, okay? They had to pick the successor. Well, they picked somebody, and he stayed for a couple of years, and they picked another one. He stayed for a couple of years, and during those first few years, they did okay. They just teeny, teeny bit better than the S&P, just a teeny, not what he had done, even though one of them had worked under him. Then the next years, they picked somebody else, and over the cliff. And over the next years, they vastly underperformed and vastly underperformed. And then we wake up a number of years later, and it's rated uh, one star by Morningstar, which means it's in the lower 10% and has been there a long time, and it's done horribly. Now, if Fidelity 
investments with all the advantages it has can't pick a successor for its own number one fund in the world, are you telling me I can or you can't? I mean, good luck. You talk in the book about how understandably the average consumer hears a name like Fidelity, or they hear somebody who's been around for a long time, and they find them, you know, there's a security in just that name. The fact that they've been there for so long, a consumer can say, that's where my investment should be, that's where my insurance should be. It's, it, it can be deceptive. Well, absolutely. You think that because they're, you know, they're big, uh, that they're you know, successful and you know, got there because they were taking care of, taking care of clients. But this is, unfortunately, it's a myth. They got there because they've been able to sell the public on what they're doing and make money for themselves and have lots of money to buy congressmen, to buy advertising, to buy, you know, to buy, and I don't mean literally in a legal sense, buy reporters, but, you know, indirectly, and, or buy their stations or whatnot. So it doesn't mean it. I mean, one of the chapters in the, in the book I have is Big is Not Beautiful. And I comment on, you know, case after case of, you know, what's gone wrong. And for the big firms. And people have said to me, well, wait, come on, you're just taking a few examples and it's not, you know, they're bad doctors and they're bad lawyers. And, you know, are you going to say every lawyer is no good and every doctor is no good? Well, I'm obviously not saying every investment firm is no good either. But I will say that all the big firms on Wall Street, the major banks, the major investment houses, many of the mutual fund complexes, they're all engaged in the same thing because it's all the same people moving around one to other. It's the same ethos. And unfortunately, it's all of them. If we look at all of the lawsuits, now anybody can get sued, but you look at how many of them, what the conclusions have been, look at the fines they've paid, uh, you know, look at the silly advice they've given, look at the fraudulent advice they've given. And it's consistent. And it's a huge percentage of the of the of the industry, so you think you're you're well protected, but you're not. I mean, people say, you know, you know, oh, you know, go to Merrill Lynch for for advice. Well, Merrill Lynch uh, paid a hundred million dollar fine a number of years ago to the state of New York for putting a stock on its you know buy list that its internal memorandum at the same point in time referred to as uh, crap and dogs. So. How much are they looking out for you? <laughs> if, you know, if that's the case. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, I, I had an interview after the. Um, so this was after the uh, crash in, in 08. So sometime kind of probably late 09. Anyway, from a major publication, and he asked me something to the effect of, you know, how are your clients restructuring and how worried are they? And kind of walked walked her through it but i said i said what i'm about to tell you i know is going to sound completely trite and self-serving i said but i learned a long time ago that if we take care of the clients they take care of us and by being careful our clients hadn't been devastated by the downturn sure if they had any equities they had to lose some money but we had a good balance and they weren't panicking so she said funny you should say that you were worried about taking care of the client. She said, I just had a similar question I posed to the executive vice president of one of the huge brokerage firms. And he said, after the crash, we had two really important constituencies to take care of. So she said, I said, who? She said, the shareholders and the employees. So that's indi indi indicative of what's going on. And that's job one of these firms. It's not to sell their product, probably sell their 
clients good products is to sell them things that make money for themselves and clients they don't care about. That's Leland Faust. He is author of A Capitalist's Lament. We're going to hear a little bit more from him after the break. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cuero in for a hopefully relaxed and food-stuffed Brad and Desi. Let's get back to more of the conversation with Leland Faust, a proud capitalist and investment expert, no longer so proud of his industry, but still confident it can be reformed without, this is where he and you and I may disagree, without what he considers excessive regulation. In a segment in the book, a successful broker abandoned his sales job and became an even more successful investment manager. In an interview years later, he reflected on his experiment as a stockbroker for major firms. He'd been concerned about the poor performance of his customers' accounts, went to his boss to discuss his uneasiness. His boss told him, you're confused about your job. He should not fret over customers' performance. Rather, his job was to bring money into the firm. The concerned broker said another broker told him, your job is to cl- turn your client's money into your own. So you well, don't really fit in anymore, do you? <laughs> well, I mean, there's been a whole uh, abandonment of what in legal terms is called being fiduciary. And that's a, a word that means you have to act for somebody else's money like it's your own. Client first, no excuses. And part of Wall Street, the registered investment advisors are subject to that legal standard. But most of Wall Street is not. They don't have to act in their client's best interest. Strange but true. They can sell them whatever they whatever they want, and it's pretty much client be beware. There is a so-called suitability standard, but that only means you can't sell things which are just totally wrong for the client. So if the client has absolutely starting out with a very small amount of money, you can't sell them the riskiest thing in the world. But you can sell them a more expensive mutual fund than a less expensive mutual fund because that's suitable. Or you could send them a bunch of stocks because that's suitable, even though they might be riskier stocks. But anyway, this actually cuts into the recent election. The Department of Labor had recently proposed some regulations to require the fiduciary standard on all pension investment advisors. And Wall Street's been fighting that a lot. But it looked like that was going to be put in place and it looked like it was going to be effective next April. Well, one of the advisors to Donald Trump is a hedge fund operator, and he compared the fiduciary rule uh, for the um, pension funds as the equivalent of slavery. It was the equivalent of the Dred Scott fugitive slave decision from the 19th century, uh, having that rule apply. There's also been some talk that the Republicans in Congress want to ban that rule. So if that happens, we're going to be going in the wrong direction. Let me get to some of the questions that are relevant to what you just brought up. What does the average investor have to look forward to under Trump's loosening oversight of Wall Street? I am one who believes that uh, there's a lot of needless regulation today. 
as sort of the capitalist lament implies or states, I am a capitalist. I believe in free markets. I believe that we need free markets to for both for more prosperity and for more freedom. But you can have too much on both sides. So we need to have you know, regulations, especially because of the history that I've cited to you of these firms just running crazy. You know, we had the firms that caused the Great Recession in 2008. And this was caused by the Wall Street firms, not because of any underlying economic failures. And we've had recessions before caused by decreases in all kinds of economic uh, performance, yeah, real estate floundering, manufacturing floundering. The recession and the crash in 08 was clearly because of Wall Street being involved in derivatives, which we can talk about later what they are, and it all cascaded down. So we need to have regulations that control that, and I'm afraid that we're going to get less of that you know, under a new administration. But there are all kinds of needless regulations which cost a lot of money and don't accomplish anything. And those are really bad in my view because they hinder performance of the companies. They're, they're paying money out to, to regulators instead of for research or higher wages for other people. They hinder innovation. They suck money out of the productive system into the non-productive. And they also interfere with what would be needed regulation. Can for you, instance, can you kind of, yeah, I know you're going to, for instance, but first, can we do broad brush? What is the nature of regulations that would be acceptable? Just kind of broad brush there. I think we we clearly need regulations that will uh, restrict the gambling that goes on. We need regulations that restrict how these firms can use derivatives. We need regulations that restrict how much leverage the companies can use, how much borrowing. And they have to be real. In other words, yeah, yes, under the so-called Dodd-Frank laws, there are higher ratios of capital to debt. But if the regulations don't make that capital real, then it doesn't matter. And that's what we need. We need regulations that are going to define carefully and hopefully the right way. You know, so we, we need regulations that say you need to be a fiduciary. Uh, we need regulations that as a limit, uh, limit, uh, limit short sales. I think we ought to have regulations that would get to what we talked about before uh, of holding these predictors accountable. Uh, you know, if you sell um, an investment and your investment goes down and you want to sell the next investment, you have to report that to the government. That's fine. I think it should be. No problem. And I don't think most people have any problem with that. But if you sell lousy advice and it goes down, why shouldn't you have to say, hey, look, this is my track record in advice. So if you're, if you're paying me for your advice, you ought to know what my record was before. And even worse, and it happens, it's one thing for everyone to say, well, you know, Leland, come on, be realistic. Everybody knows that advice is just subject to somebody's opinion. It doesn't have to be right. You know what? I might even say, okay, but, and here's the big but, and it happens all the time, but when I say I did something, I predicted this, and I didn't, then I'm lying, and that's fraud, and that should be actionable. Mm -hmm. So you want to just say, oh, I made a bunch of predictions, but don't claim they were right then if they weren't. And you can't be able to cherry pick either. You can't make 10 predictions, pick the two that were right, and say, I got these two right, and disregard the eight that were wrong. I couldn't do that if I were selling you stock. I couldn't say, well, I've sold stock 10 times before and only report the two that were up. Well, it should be the same with, uh, with advice. So I think we ought to be 
you know, regulating that kind of thing, too. Which takes us back to the media. I mean, because the media is is so frequently wrong about what's happening on Wall Street and what one can expect. You look at the people that have the highest profile, not within the industry, but outside the industry. I think that Jim Cramer has a lot of recognition to a lot of people, arguably was one of the forces behind the rise of the Tea Party because he had a rant on the air that (laughs) sparked some interest. In fact, I had to crack up. There's a sentence in your book that said, why would anybody take advice from someone who's constantly screaming on television? Well, they put him in office, so (laughs) (laughs) they take advice from him. But how much responsibility or accountability can we possibly ask from these people in the media, from barons putting losers on their cover, from Jim Cramer spouting off advice he doesn't really understand the basis of himself? Is there any accountability there? Well, say right now there's there's there is there is none, and you know there's no there's no regulatory authority to, to prevent that except in the most extreme extreme cases, and he would never qualify for those cases as bad as some of his advice has has been and how how you know cr- you know crazy it's been. I maybe should give a couple of examples in a second here. Why did I say that about him? Um, but. Uh, I think the media should be should be watchdogs, not cheerleaders, and they're cheerleaders. So, I mean, an example, another example I have in the in, in you know in the in the capital lament is uh, a number of years ago, Fortune magazine started its annual um, all-star analyst selections, and they went and they looked at the big firms of Wall Street, and they were all big firms, and they chose their best analysts in 15 different areas. So they chose their, who they determined was the best analyst in drugs and the best analyst in banking and the best analyst in retail and the best in computer software and the best, you get the picture, 15 different industries. And on the cover, it says, here are our 15 all-star analysts, and I'm not exaggerating, in two-inch letters, red, let them make you rich. Well, how are they going to do that? Well, the way they did that was to each they asked each of them to name their two favorite stocks. So you had a portfolio. Well, it wasn't 30 stocks, strange but true. It was only 28 because the guy for regional banking said, I think they're all overpriced now. Don't buy any of them. Well, he was right and he was fired. Um, <laughs> but the other 28 named their two favorite picks. Well, this was just when the market was entering into a to a real bad patch. But even then, you'd say, well, they tell you the best stocks to own. Well, over the next two years, when I, I suspense this, and then, put, you know, silly me, suspense it and then bring it back and check. Well, two years later, the S&P had gone down 37%, which, you know, really huge bad patch. But the 28 stocks from the all-star analysts had gone down an average of 62%. So let them make you rich indeed. Now, so so they're cheerleaders. They're trying to sell magazines. It doesn't sell magazines to say, hey, look what these guys on Wall Street have to say. Hmm, I wonder if it's going to be any good or not. That's just, there's no interest there. That's Leland Faust. You can hear my entire interview with him at InDeepRadio.com. I'm Angie Coyer, in for Brad and Desi today. Uh, quick notes about things to be thankful for on this Thanksgiving weekend. This is really cool. You know, little things. You look for little things at times like these. There is a legislator in New York who has proposed a law to ban conversion therapy, you know, making gay people better at being straight. And the local legislation that he introduced to ban conversion therapy is called the Prevention 
of Emotional Neglect and Childhood Endangerment Bill. Pence. P-E-N-C-E. Thank you for that. And thank you, too, to somebody I had not heard about this when it first came out, but I'm grateful to hear about people like this taking a stand. You know, we've seen Penzi Spices and another of, a number of other companies really step up and say, yeah, we're a company, but we also care about the country, and we're taking a stand where Trump is concerned. And here's a guy who did that big time. The company is called First in SEO, Internet Marketing, SEO. The CEO of First in SEO has released a statement. Matthew Blanchfield said flat out that America has elected Donald Trump, a racist, sexist, fascist, to be our next president. First in SEO will no longer do business with any person that is a registered Republican or supports Donald Trump. First in SEO will also not do businesses with business interests that support either the Republican Party or Donald Trump. We rely on the integrity of the men and women who are our clients to currently to find another SEO provider if they are Republicans, voted for Donald Trump, or supported Donald Trump. If you are a Republican, voted for Donald Trump, or support Donald Trump in any manner, you are not welcome at First in SEO, and we ask you to leave our firm. Matthew Blanchfield, CEO, First in SEO. Very cool. And finally, at the risk of gushing over my boss here, and also in the spirit of the holiday, I want to express real gratitude, real thankfulness for the work that Brad and Desi do every day here and behind the scenes of the Bradcast and the Green News Report. And, you know, I've sat in for them off and on, sometimes disastrously, sometimes well, and my sitting in for them gives me the tiniest glimpse of their lives, of the huge amount of labor and investigation that goes into bringing you the information that they research and compile. The broadcast is unique, with only two people pulling all this weight, working this hard to bring you information on voting integrity, on all the issues underlying that. And essentially, I know this may sound all, you know, corny, essentially serving their country. I, I feel real gratitude for them. And I, and I hope you do, too. You're listening, so you probably do. So, Brad and Desi, I hope you do get some, some real rest this weekend because your butts are back in the chairs on Monday. <laughs> so good for you. Signing off for today, it's the Bradcast. Good luck, world. <laughs>